We've been talking about uh, the next generation that will follow us in the faith and uh, the, the hints and help that the Shema gives us and how we raise and reach that generation. So the scripture this morning actually is from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and going into verse 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words I'm commanding you this day are to be upon your hearts. Impress them upon your children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. You fly more than a few times commercially in your lifetime, and you pretty much turn it off when they start the safety demonstrations and the different features and the exit doors of the airplane. And so by the time that they've told you in the unlikely event of an emergency and the cabin pressure is lost, oxygen masks will come down. And by then, you've probably completely turned them off when they remind you that should this happen, first put the mask on yourself and then put it on those Who need assistance? I want to tell you that as we talk these next few weeks, continue to talk about raising the next generation in faith, that the biggest secret and help I can give you is simply this. Before you put the mask on somebody else, put the mask on yourself. Before you go to those who need assistance, first secure your own mask. Or another way to say it in the Shema is uh, before you impress these words on your children, they have to be on your heart. Last week, we talked about the importance of leaving a legacy. And inheritance has to do with the things that we leave the next generation. But legacy is something that lives on inside them and that carries on and that helps them face the challenges of of a new day. And so one way to think about that this morning is just to say that in order to leave a legacy, we first have to live the legacy. And the Bible seems pretty clear about that order in the Shema, but it doesn't say why that's the order. So I'm just speculating this morning, but I thought I'd offer a few thoughts on why first we've got to secure the mask on ourselves before we can reach out to others who need assistance. And the first thought that occurs to me is simply this, and and that is that it's pretty much um, our life experience that we learn more from watching than even we do from hearing what people tell us. And that uh, the example that other people set as we watch in that, we often are shaped more by that than the lectures they may give us on various topics. And so we get uh, truisms in our society such as actions speak louder than words. Oh, you'll remember the famous advice of St. Francis of Assisi. He said, proclaim the gospel and use words if absolutely necessary. And so we get this real uh, sense of how important the action is and how important the example is. Edmund Burke, a great uh, statesman uh, in Britain a couple centuries ago, said it this way, that the one school in which we all enroll is the school of example. So at some level, it doesn't really matter what college your children go to, or even if they go to college, the majority of their education has already taken place by living under your roof and watching you on a daily basis. And so maybe that's what the Bible had in mind. Or maybe it's as simple as this. Maybe the Bible simply knows that very few people get argued, are persuaded by arguments into living a life of faith. Studies have been pretty consistent over the past few decades that 85% of people who find their way into the community of faith and Christianity find their way in because of someone they know, a loved one, a friend, 
a, a co-worker, that that seems to be more effective than, than a, a, a tract that got handed to them or a revival that was held in some football stadium somewhere, but that typically people don't get argued into the faith or even talked into it so much as they rub up against people who are living the faith, and it, it seems to come in uh, that way. And so people, as, as it's been said, oftentimes Christianity seems to be as much caught as taught. And maybe the Bible is aware of, of that, that we're probably not going to talk folks into it. Now, you probably know the Bible well enough to know that Peter, when he's given advice to the early Christians, says in First Peter 3.15, you should always be ready to give a, a, a defense or an account for the a reason for the hope that's in you. So Peter's like, you know, when they ask, you need to be ready to tell them, and, and that's good advice. But you need to go back when you get home this afternoon and look at First Peter earlier in chapter 3 and in chapter 2, and you see Peter giving all these instructions about how they are to live their life. It's, it seems to me as if Peter is saying, live in such a way that your life actually becomes the question. People look at you and they want to know why. Why don't you succumb to fear and anxiety, uh, unforgiveness? Uh, why don't you let guilt play a major role in your life? Why are you different like that? And those questions in your, that your life raises become an opportunity to talk with people about faith. But, but it will be the example first that will set the table for the words. We'll have the mask on ourselves. They'll see that we are breathing freely. And then they become perhaps interested in how that is possible for us. Uh, Peter in, uh, in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, reminds folks that they are living stones. And, and if you've ever seen the Ray Vanderland video, you go, or you've gone with Ray or Scott Hare to Israel, uh, you may know that one of the first things that happens after you land in Tel Aviv is they bus you um, into a place where you see these large, many-ton, several-ton stones out in the middle of nowhere today. But in that day, they would have been placed by the side of the road that uh, pedestrians uh, would travel by. And what would happen is these stones were called standing stones. And when something happened in the community, a drought was broken, a miraculous military victory was won, a, a, a disease was wiped out, uh, what the uh, Canaanites would do is raise the stone as a testimony to what happened. And then in future years, when people were traveling along the highway, they would see the stones. They would ask, why are they there? And the villagers would come out and say, well, that's the time when God brought us rain after all this drought and and they would make a testimony. And Peter uses that analogy to say that our lives are to be those kinds of stones. And Peter uh, assumed that by looking at us, they might have some questions. And then we can, uh, we can use the words that are necessary. So maybe that's what's going on. Maybe the Bible just knows how powerful example is or, or how ineffective words are apart from example. Or maybe it's this. Maybe the Bible just knows that real change Deep change is never a one-shot transaction. That deep change occurs in people's life over many interactions over a long period of time. And uh, what's interesting is so much of modern uh, Protestant evangelical 
evangelicalism uh, was shaped on a college campus where you only had a student for four years and you probably only got him or her for a few nights in all those four years. So they came up with the so-called four spiritual laws. Do you remember those? And you could have them on a tract and you could, in four easy steps, lead, lead someone to a relationship with Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, biblically, that sort of change in commitment takes place as a person watches you and lives with you over a long period of time. The example the rabbis used was this. One of them was walking one day and noticed how over a period of time, running water from the melted snow and the rain had uh, made grooves in a rock, had made uh, these indentations in a rock over the, the path that the water took. And the rabbi said, that's how discipleship works. It's this constant contact over time, time and time again, over these examples that finally make the indentation or that that leave evidence of where where the water has been. And they looked uh, at uh, discipling and raising up the generation as that. It's, It's a number of contacts over a long period of time that finally makes an impression in the rock that is another person's life. I think counselors are sometimes onto this. Perhaps if you've ever been in counseling about relationships, sometimes they'll tell you that one of the things that happens in our relationships with each other is often we are making deposits in a person's emotional bank account or we're making withdrawals from it by the way we treat them. And that what happens for trust and relationship to be built up over time, you've got to have a large number of deposits and they have to far outweigh the withdrawals uh, that occur. And I think it's the same way that change like trust is developed over a long period of time. Maybe the Bible is aware of that or simply maybe the Bible is aware of this, that we can't change anybody else. That change is the responsibility of the Holy Spirit working with the person at that person's uh, approval, that the person has to work with the Holy Spirit to, to change. And so maybe the Bible starts with change in the only place that change can be affected, and that's within ourselves. We can't change another person, but we can do something about ourselves. And when we do something about ourselves, that will have an effect on the people who are around us. I'm reminded of another great rabbinic story. You may have heard about the rabbi that said he set out to change the world. And and failing that, he went out and tried to set about uh, changing his country. And that wasn't working too well. So he worked on changing his village. And that wasn't particularly progressing well. So he worked on changing his family. They seemed resistant to that. And he said, I finally realized I had to change myself. And then by changing myself, my family became changed. As enough families in the village changed, the village became different, and so on. So that the rabbi made the observation that if you want to change the world, you have to start with yourself. You perhaps picked out the phrase in the anthem that was being uh, sung this morning. It's a classic phrase, which is this. You have to be the change that you want to see in the world. And I think the Bible would agree with that. Put your mask on first. And then you can go and be of assistance to others. The change starts here because that's the only place where we, in a sense, can uh, have any major influence on the change. And then as we change, others around us get that opportunity uh, to be affected by that change. Family counselors will often tell you that it only takes one person in a family to get healthy to start to change the dynamics of the family of one person gets healthy, things begin to change. When you put your mask on and you start living and breathing freely the life of faith, other people 
are positively affected by that. But it starts in the only sphere that you can control, and that is your own life. Let me put it another way in in parenting terms, and this is from Brene Brown in a wonderful book called Daring Greatly. Some of you are aware of her work. I've I've been on Oprah, a number of YouTube um, uh, videos, a number of books. But this is what she says about parenting. She said, to parents, you must become the person that you want your children to become. That's it, she said. That's the key to parenting. What is it you want your children to grow up and and be as, as people? That must be found in your life. Put your mask on first, and then you can worry about the person next to you. Now, please understand, this is not an opportunity for guilt about what we may have or have not done uh, with the next generation, who can not only, as we mentioned last week, be children, but also be anybody who's not yet uh, come into the circle of faith. It's, It's actually a note of grace that says there's probably no one book out there that you need to read, one practice that you need to incorporate. Nobody has it all down. What it is, it's an imitation of grace that says, live the commitment that you've made. Live the passion for God that is in your heart and live it out in front of those uh, whom you love. And that begins to make a difference. First, put it on yourself and live it. And then it begins to affect those who are around you. Um, I think um, I'm helped by a uh, Scott Hare, who made some observations about how this um, works uh, in, in the desert when they leave Egypt and they're on the way to the promised land. And Moses is speaking to them as they're about to enter the promised land. And he says a couple things happened uh, between the slavery in Egypt and the freedom of the promised land. And one is that the people learned to follow as they were on this journey. One of the things that happened is 40 years in the wilderness taught them uh, cloud by day fire by night, they knew they were not in charge. They knew they were not charting the direction. Someone else was charting the direction, and they were following it. They learned how to follow. And so one of the things I would simply say is for those who are watching us, they need to know that we are following. And I think it starts with uh, how do we make the key decisions in our life? What role does does the Lord play? If, If we call him Lord and we call Jesus Lord, what role does he play in those decisions? And a more practical basis, as we've talked about before, do our children see us honoring our parents? Do they see us honoring our employers? Do they see us honoring the other figures that God has placed in our life? Do they see us following? And if they don't see us following, how can we expect that they will ever learn to follow? So that was a powerful lesson in the desert, which was that they were going to have to depend on God, and they were going to have to follow in order to get out of that place and get to the promised land. John Wesley's mother, Susanna, John Wesley was the founder of Methodism in in the 18th century, had very interesting ideas about parenting. And one of her ideas about parenting, she said, you must break the child's will. that That seems a bit much for me, but I think this is what she was getting after. What you want for your children is that they will grow up and they will honor God and they will follow God that they will not be the center of the universe, that God will be the center of the universe. And she was just, I think, suggesting that you raise your children in such a way that they are able to do that. And they are able to do that as they see us following and honoring. Second thing Scott pointed out to me that I thought was very helpful was this. On the way from the desert 
and slavery, I mean from Egypt and slavery through the desert to freedom, he said they also learned how to live into a new identity. Their identity in Egypt was they were slaves and had no value or worth. Their identity in the promised land is they were free sons and daughters who had the run of the house. How did they get from one to the other? In the desert, they began to live out and practice their new identity. And so I think it's important that we, if we want our children to live free, and we want them to be confident and to be loved and to know that they have a home and a place in this world, we have to live the same way. We have to reject fear. We have to reject anxiety. We have to reject unhealthy competition. Everything where we try to make our own way in the world and we need to start living in front of the next generation, trust that God can provide and give to us what it is we need most. And as we do that and learn to live into that identity of being loved, I think the next generation stands a better chance. As I sum it up this morning, I want to share with you something uh, Chris Estes shared uh, with us the other day. Um, Chris leads our uh, AA groups here on this campus, a number of them, and our Pioneer Recovery uh, Service at Asbury. And he said a number of years ago, during, after Hurricane Katrina, in the National Alcoholics Anonymous newsletter, somebody wrote in a question and said, should we be collecting material to send to the AA groups in New Orleans since they probably lost everything in the flood? Should we be collecting it and sending it there to help them? And the response from the AA National Newsletter editor I thought was pretty fascinating. He or she said, what you should do is don't drink, keep attending your meetings, pray, work the 12 steps so that you will be in shape and able to help whenever they ask. What was the editor saying? Put on your own mask, securely fasten it. So you can help others as we lead lives of faith. One day, I believe they will ask for our assistance.